Hello, and welcome to the Scuttlebutt Podcast. Today, you're getting to hear my conversation with Colin Price. Colin is a 20-year aviator, was the executive officer and commanding officer of VFA-154, and is now the prospective executive officer of CVN-69, the Dwight D. Eisenhower. In this conversation, we discuss what it's like being a pilot and some of the nuances of flying an aircraft hundreds of miles an hour. There's some weird similarities into driving a car. Uh, Some of the, the same nuances apply. We talk about the leadership philosophy he hopes to bring to the carrier life and the differences in leading at a squadron versus what he expects on a carrier with uh, a multiple of people larger. I also get his take on the future of the Navy and when it comes to autonomous ships and AI powered jets. Colin is incredibly passionate about the military and can be seen directly in his desire to retain people and make people's military experience positive. Colin asked that I state that any views or opinions he expresses in this podcast are his own and do not reflect the opinion of the US Navy or Department of Defense. First time I've had to read a disclaimer. That's funny. Maybe that means we're onto something and finding some interesting guests. Please enjoy this conversation with Colin Price. never been accused of being quiet that's for sure okay well here you don't have to be quiet it's uh it's all about giving a voice uh colin welcome to the show uh, thanks for having uh, me brock yeah i am really looking forward to our conversation we've got a very similar well not similar but um an aviation background that we share and and i think we're going to have a lot of good topics to talk about there The first thing I want to start out with talking about is having you describe what it's like being a pilot. I was leading up to this interview, I was trying to imagine what that must be like. And very simply, I have to think that it's similar to driving a car. In some ways, you're you're going down an area, you're being mindful of your surroundings and what else is there. And um, we joked on another podcast about pedals do you actually use pedals to to operate like the gas and the brake or is it all hands uh well yeah there are putt pedals uh mainly especially this what i fly the super hornet um you use the pedals actually to steer on the ground so you move your rental pedals left and right to to move which way you want to turn left or right um and then in the air that's what controls your rudder which controls your your yaw now an advanced aircraft like the super hornet I'll be honest, like I'm pretty lazy with how much I use my rudders because the aircraft and the digital flight controls does everything for me. You know, back in the day uh, with guys flying biplanes and stuff, right? You know, and, and even actually civilian aviators flying smaller planes really need to work their rudders to, to keep the aircraft balanced and flying well. Um, so, you know, th- that's for the steering, but everything, every, you know, to go faster or slower is all with my left hand on my throttle and to go up, down, left or right, that's all with my right hands. 
uh, with my stick. Um, you know, using the, the driving analogy is a pretty good one that I try and explain to people all the time. Because when people see us, uh, an aircraft flying formation and see the Blue Angels and you know, Blue Angels is obviously an extreme example, but, you know, we go out and you're taught in flight school to fly, you know, less than a foot from another aircraft. And when people hear that and they, you're like, wow, you're going 350 miles an hour and you're only a foot from another aircraft. And I'm like, yeah, it's no different than you doing 80 miles down the highway and you're a foot away from that car that's in the other lane from you. And then you really want to play that game where you're, you know, going to the same speed and maintaining the same kind of separation with that other vehicle. It's the same thing flying. The only difference is we had just another dimension, right? So instead of just going forward, backwards, left and right, I also got to worry about up and down. Um, and I think sometimes that takes a little bit of the magic away from flying because it's, it becomes just like driving, you know, think about when you first learned to drive, got your, your learner's permit, there was a lot going on and it was a stressful and driving at night, you know, any of that was a very stressful um, thing to do and learning to fly in the beginning is very stressful, but you get to the point where, you know, me flying an aircraft is no different than me driving to work. Um, now where it gets a little, you know, yeah, a little bit more exciting is um, in more dynamic maneuvering. If you're fighting with another aircraft and you're coming at, now you are pointing at each other, each flying 400 miles an hour, closing at a rapid rate, um, doing things like that. And then as a naval aviator, you know, landing and taking off from an aircraft carrier have always been, um, even to this day, you know, I still kind of giggle or get, get excited, excited when I get to do those kind of things um, just because of the quick uh, adrenaline rush. Um, the question I always get is people like, hey, do you like taking off or landing more? I personally have never been a huge fan of cat shots because for about three seconds, I'm not in control. I'm just kind of sitting back waiting for the ride and hoping all these systems of systems all work uh, and do their thing. Um, whereas like landing, I love landing because it is like the one thing in my life that I've done that's like instant gratification, instant feedback, right? Like I have just spent the last 18 seconds just focusing on flying the ball, trying to land on this, uh, this moving uh, flight deck. And as soon as you catch that wire and come to a stop, you're like, boom, I just did that. Um, and that's, that was always a cool feeling. So me personally, I like landing more than uh, taking it off. You ever have that, you mentioned it or correlated it to driving at 80 miles an hour. I, I'm not exactly sure what the word is to describe this feeling, but you know, when you're driving down the highway and then all of a sudden you kind of just like have this realization that you, you kind of like didn't really realize that you were driving and you're like, oh, wow, like literally if I even breathe on this wheel wrong, I could cause like a 25 car pile up and you just like kind of start freaking out a little bit. Does that experience happen in the jet also? All, all the time, right? It's a, you know, flying formation. You are just like kind of so focused and your hands are and are making these small little movements um, as you're just kind of staring at this aircraft, trying to maintain that position. Um, and you're like, what did I just do for the last five minutes? But it, you know, because it's just, you're, as we say, you're working on brainstem power, right? And, it, and when you're driving down the road, you might not remember that five minutes, but at, at each second you were fully engaged at what you're doing at that very second, right? Like you knew you're focusing on the, the two lines in between you. You might've been listening to a podcast or rocking out to, to whatever song you are, right? But you were focusing on for that second, it just kind of blurs together. And the flying is the same way. I, you know, each second I'm in fully focused, but then last 
group of seconds just kind of start blurring together and I can't really pick out a particular moment as I'm, uh, I'm flying, but yes, I do that both dry driving and flying all the, uh, all the time. That, uh, that doesn't surprise me to hear when it comes to the, the arrestments on a carrier and like takeoffs, I've read some certain things about this, but I've never really gotten a clear answer. Is there a certain degradation that happens to your body from experiencing that? Because I had the actual great pleasure of taking uh, a, a COD plane off and onto uh, a carrier at a specific time and got to feel that launch feeling, obviously not quite as fast, I'm sure, but the, the feeling of the launch and then the arrestment. And I can't imagine that that's super great on your body. Is there a limit or a number of times that they look at that? Uh, at least for, from a medical perspective. No. I, so, I mean, it's all individual base. I, I will tell you, like, I have arthritis in my neck. Um, and especially from cat shots, because, you know, if you go on YouTube and you watch a video, there's always a kind of a video of a, it's facing the pilot as he's going down the cat stroke. And as, as kind of you hit the end of the carrier and that pressure comes off, you know, there's a, there's a tendency for your head to snap forward. And I spent a lot of my career, career wearing what we call the joint helmet mounted cuneing system, which is kind of the big visor. And it's a big bulky, um, device on the top that allows me to do a lot of my, um, sensor operation and, and inputs through my helmet it's a great piece of gear but it weighs a lot and that that you've got this huge weight um, on the the fulcrum of your head that kind of snaps forward and it doesn't seem like much but after you know and i've got just over 700 um arrestments and and take and catapults off a carrier you know that starts adding up and um when i was in leaving japan about 2014 off of my department head tour you know i almost took non-flying orders because my neck was kind of locking up about, you know, every couple of weeks, you know, I got a, I got an appointment with a physical therapist tomorrow to, to do it. And it's kind of one of those things that I think we need to do a better job and, and we're getting there um, is, is we do have physical therapists on base. We're, you know, we're trying to get people there, but it's also just teaching aviators on day one on neck and back care. Cause those are the two most common problems that we see you know, helicopter pilots, they do a lot of, they, they have their backs take a lot of beating as aviators. Um, we take a lot of beating on our neck, especially if you're pulling, trying to pull G's and you're fighting a guy and you're looking, trying to look over your shoulder to find him. And now you're pulling G's as you're moving your head. Um, so now instead of my, you know, my head, my human head weighs eight pounds or what it was from Jerry Maguire, you know, now I'm pulling four or five G's. Now that's 40 or 50 pounds of strain that my neck's not designed to take and um, just teaching uh, aviators to kind of like, hey, move your head, pull G, and then, you know, get your head set and then kind of get on the G, teaching things like that, but also just day-to-day -day maintenance uh, and strengthening, something, you know, I'm constantly striving to do uh, as well. But now I'm behind the power curve, right? Like my, my, the damage is done to my neck. I'm fully mobile. I can still fly. It's not a big deal. Um, I just, I, I just can't, I don't have as much neck magic as I used to, as I tell people, I can't fully, fully look as a, uh, as back. So the way I fight the aircraft has actually changed a little bit because of the way I, I, I move my neck. So yeah, over, over time, um, it, you know, it's flying an aircraft, especially a high performance aircraft. It's, 
it is a, it's a rough sport. It, can, it will, t- it will take the toll on you pulling G's, um, arrestments and cat shots all start adding up after a while. If you're not kind of physically fit and ready for it. Can't be losing that neck magic, as you said, <laughs> uh, for, for anybody unfamiliar, would you explain pulling G's, uh, just so that we're appealing to, uh, non-aviation folks? Yeah, no well. problem. I, uh, yeah, you keep me honest on, um, when I, some things I take for granted, right. So when, when we're sitting here on the ground or you're flying straight and level in an aircraft, your one gravitational unit is what you're pulling you towards the earth. Um, but as we move an aircraft, you know, are changing our, how much lift we're pulling and that would change how fast we turn. Um, so, you know, if you're in a airliner, even when they do a 30 degree angle of bank, they actually have to pull a little bit more G with that um, angle of bank, you just don't feel it because it's it's oh, it's like goes from like one G to like one point one G because we have to kind of keep make sure the lift vector, the lift keeping the airplane going vertical, is still there. Um, but for us in a high performance aircraft, uh, Super Hornet was seven and a half Gs. I have some time in F sixteen which we could pull nine Gs. So you're pulling seven and a half to nine times the normal weight of of gravity. So. For a guy like me who weighs 225 pounds, I'm not going to try and do public math. But now as I'm pulling seven Gs, you know, seven times 225 is kind of like how much I'm actually like kind of weighing as, as we uh, pull. And that's why you're able to see uh, any sort of military jet aircraft, you know, really turn quickly or whatever, because they're pulling G um, to increase that lift and move their nose uh, quicker through the sky. I can tell already just from our brief conversation that you live and breathe this just in the way that you talk because even even before this you're you're throwing out words like fulcrum and your pitch and your yaw you're like very tuned in to kind of like the dynamics and the verbiage used in that that's funny yeah so it's a little bit of my probably like my engineering uh brain working too as now i've been living in the nuclear world for the last year um you know i think i think mathematically uh, a lot more, but uh, I mean, yeah, I've been doing this for, for 20 years. Um, and I, I've been fortunate that in my 20 years up to this point, like I was flying the entire time. Like I you know, got to, to be in a, in constantly flying in an aircraft. Um, so it has been, been my consistent conversation that I've been having for the last 20 years. Yeah. Uh, you've made a life of it and that that's absolutely what you know. How, how old were you when you joined? So I, uh, I got into the Naval Academy um, out of high school. So I went into the Naval Academy at 18, did my 14, four years there um, and graduated in 2001. Um, so I was, you know, just turned 22 um, when I actually was commission, commissioned as an ensign uh, and, you know, started, went down to Pensacola to kind of start my uh, career path as a Naval aviator. You mentioned you've been in nuclear power school, spent 20 years flying. You're actually slotted to take over as the XO of a carrier, a CVN 69, Dwight D. Eisenhower. One congratulations, like that is a, a magnificent honor, like just as a third party, but also very prestigious within the Navy, just because there's one so few carriers and I mean, there's not a ton of pilots, but there's quite a few. Um, and, and we were talking before you were explaining how you actually need to be a pilot to take or an NFO 
naval flight officer to take over command of a carrier. Are you excited? Are, are you nervous? What's what's going through your head? Uh, both. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely excited. Like this has been um, a long time coming to get to this path. Um, one of which for most of my career, I was definitely the guy who was like, eh, no way, I'm not going to do that. That sounds that sounds ridiculous. Um, and then, you know, here I am now. Um, the I'm definitely excited because, uh, you know, especially I've been in school for the last year. So I've kind of you get to the point where like, all right, I'm done with school. Like, I just want to get in and actually do things, you know, get in and and, and act instead of just kind of like learning. But the you know, trading that off of is, yeah, so the last 20 years, what I tell people is when I, when I joined my squadron, um, so prior to this, I was the executive officer, commanding officer, of BFA 154 in Lamar, California. And when I stepped in as an executive officer, I had been living and breathing squadron operations for uh, 18 years to that point. Like I knew exactly what I needed to do the day I stepped in. Like I knew what a squadron was supposed to do, how people were supposed to act, you know, how things were supposed to get done. Uh, I wasn't worried about that. You know, there's going to be a couple of things that I, I had to kind of learn along the way, but for the most part, it's like, Hey, I know how to do this job. But like any, any self-respecting aviator is when you get on the carrier, what people don't realize is, you know, you hear the number of the carrier is 5,000 people. Well, 3,500 of that is the people who are actually attached and to the carrier. The other 1,500 is the air wing. So that's all the airplanes that come apart, come on board when we go on deployment. We are two separate entities. And we, you know, we do some training as we get ready to go on deployment, but like I said, we're, we're two separate. And so as an, you know, when you get on, as you, when you're an air wing person, i.e. you're in a squadron, you get on a carrier, like, ah, oh, that's carrier people doing carrier stuff. You know, I'm over here on the flight deck doing my thing. And we live on the, what we call the O3 level, which is the, the if you look at kind of the vertical uh, floors of a of a ship, you know, we label all our we call them decks. So the or, and then above the hangar deck is the O3 level. And that's one right below the the flight deck. And like I lived on the O3 level. That's where my the ready room where I briefed and worked every day. I could eat up there. I mean, there was a gym up there. You know, I could live my entire life just on the O3 level and then step up on the flight deck to go flying. That's all I needed to do. But there is a ton of other things that go on below. Uh, that O3 level on an aircraft carrier um, that I have never experienced and don't know. And there's so many other jobs. And that's the part that makes me nervous uh, or, you know, a little anxious is like, there's a lot to that makes an aircraft carrier. It is a, it is a mini city with everyone doing everything. And I've got to learn every single one of those jobs and what those people do, and what makes them tick um, and how we get this all kind of going in the same direction. I mean, the ultimate goal is, Right, is an aircraft going off the front end with ordnance um, to do whatever the, the mission takes. Right, like all that five thousand people, their entire goal is to make sure that that aircraft gets off safely and do, is able to do its job. So there's there's a lot for me to learn. Um, I am out of my comfort level, but it was is one of the reasons I I chose to to kind of pursue this task was um, I I like to get out of my comfort level and this was the best way to do it. Yeah, I can confidently say and speak to the level of of how much is going on uh, on a carrier. I, I spent two and a half years on one, lived on one for over a year, and I still did not visit all of the spaces 
that uh, the boat has. So it, there really is a lot that it takes to keep it moving. I was going to ask, you mentioned that you wanted to pursue this. How, how do you decide that? And is that something that's almost maybe decided for you? Do you come and get the tap on the shoulder and they say, hey, you might be a good person for this? Or is that something relatively available to everybody? Uh, so both. Uh, and really, this is, you, I think you're probably familiar with the Navy, right? There's, in the Navy, you can always kind of ask for what you want. And then as my buddy says, like, hey, if, if your wants aligns with the Navy's needs, you're always going to get your first choice. That's not necessarily the case. Um, so, you know, so this case, uh, to be eligible for this pipeline, what we call the nuke pipeline in our community, you have to have done a, a successful squadron command. So I you know, was fortunate that I had a, a, a good command um, and was able to come out of that. And, you know, there's a point where your boss pulls you in and especially for you and my boss and I was, cause I was getting ready to retire or thinking about retiring um, prior to this. And, you know, my boss kind of pulled me in and he kind of gave me the, Hey, are you in or you're out? And of course this was like month one of deployment and another life lesson is never make uh, life decisions on deployment. Uh, but you know, my wife and I discussed about it, but you know, I, I said, Hey, I think this is now something I'm interested in. And then ultimately there's the, the Navy has what we call screen board. So you're, everyone that's kind of eligible, your record gets looked at in Millington, Tennessee, and then they select the people um, that, you know, they think are the, the best suited. So there are some requirements, you know, there were some academic requirements for us to be able to, to pursue this path. So it was something, yes, I, I was like, Hey, I'm, I want to do this. Um, but ultimately the Navy had to kind of pick me and say, yep, Hey, we think uh, you're capable of doing this. Um, and so, you know, I, I got selected uh, for it. How do you look at your commitment going forward when you're, you're saying you're being asked, like, are you in or are you out? Are you looking at this as, you know, is this just another couple of years you're adding on and then you're going to see how it goes or is this like, no, we're, we're going to do this and go all the way. Yeah, that I, I don't know. Somewhat what of a, somewhat of a loaded I mean, question, uh, but it's a fair question because that's one of the things that really scares uh, people off about this pipeline is that really from start to finish, it's about eight years before you're even, you know, when you finish potentially being the, the, the commanding officer of an aircraft carrier. Um, and let me give you a little background on the, the background. So I've already been in for 20 years, right? I had to do kind of three operational tours and squadrons to even get to this point. And then once you get selected for this pipeline, you do about 18 months of training, the majority of which is going through kind of nuclear power training. That's, you know, 18 months. Then you do 18 to 24 months as a, what we call the big XO or the executive officer of the aircraft carrier. There's a bunch of other executive officers. Like I was an executive officer on an aircraft carrier of a squadron, but the big XO is, you know, the one to rule them all. Uh, it's what he does or she does. And then after that, you can go or do what we call a deep draft command. So kind of a large amphibious ship, um, do that for 14 to 15 months. And then after that, you're now again, have to get actually selected to get looked at to command an aircraft carrier, right? That's not a given. And then once you're, if you're a CEO of an aircraft carrier, that's anywhere from, you know, probably about 30 to 30 to 36 months, right? So start to finish, it's about eight years. Now, that being said, you know, 
at no time do we have not signed the dotted line that says, yes, I'm in for the next um, eight years. But there's a little bit of the, oh, I've come this far. Like, you know, I, I can't quit now. So, you know, going back, I think the important part is like, yeah, I was thinking about retiring. Um, you know, I was hitting my 20 and I was going to be current in an aircraft. So if I was thinking about applying for the airlines and kind of doing what a lot of people are doing now, um, it, everything was aligning itself right. And I've been a guy that has literally tried to get out of the Navy at every opportunity afforded me. And then something has kind of popped up. And ultimately, I've, I've just every job. So you know, this actually taking a step back. Right. You know, I'm a young junior officer in my first squadron. And you have your junior officers who are all the new people. And then above that, you have your department heads who are kind of middle management. And then you have the executive officer and the CEO who are kind of, you know, running the squadron. And I remember looking my department heads in the face and being like, I never want your effing job. You guys look miserable, right? And then next thing I know, I'm showing up to a squadron as a department head. Um, and the JOs are like, oh, great, another department head. Uh, and I love that job. It was, a, it was a great job. And I think for me, that was a, that, tour was a big turning point for me in my career of like actually kind of figuring thing out. Um, we talk about this a little late, later too. It's like, I'm, I'll, I'll, I was a, I was a shitty J.O. Uh, wasn't a good person. Wasn't in a good place. Uh, a lot of things came to that to, to change that mindset. And then, you know, fortunately I got selected to command a squadron and loved every minute of it. And I had some challenges. I had some huge challenges and I loved it. And a lot of times we see people in the military and the military can be a frustrating place. It's, it's not an easy life. It isn't a hard life. You get people that kind of do the like F this, I can't take this anymore. I'm out of here. Um, or you can be like, you know what, this is not great, but I want to try and make this better. And I care about the Navy extremely. And I want the Navy to be good. And my mindset was, well, if I want the Navy to be good, I need to stay in and have skin in the game to make the Navy good, right? I didn't want to be the guy that retired at 20 years and then now sit on my porch and drink beer and be like, well, back when I was in the Navy, it was awesome, you know, but. That's um, a requirement for anybody that gets out after that much time. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, but it's, it is one of the things that kind of chaps my height a little bit, right? You know, kind of the, the people that haven't, haven't been in a while and don't, aren't going through what I'm going through, right? And just sitting here kind of talking smack about the, the Navy. And I'm like, no, I want to be in the Navy and I want to make it good. And fortunately I've got an awesome family that's able to support that. You know, that's selection number one of, Hey, can we do this? And that was the big discussion between my wife and I, between retiring or keep going. We're like, no, you know, this is treating us well. We're, we're hanging in and I want to make the Navy good. I want to stay in. And of course I, you know, I can't try and sit there in my squadron and convince all my JOs to try and stay in. Um, and keep flying in the Navy if all of a sudden I'm turning around and retiring, right? It's kind of a little bit of that walk in the walk. So um, I'm like, you know what? No, I, I, I think I can be the person. I enjoyed my CO tour. I feel like I, I was able to make some difference uh, for some people. And I want to kind of keep paying that forward and keep doing it. Um, very much, I don't want to become, um, have you ever heard of the Peter Principle? Um, it's something I got to you know, keep aware. So it's a, the Peter Principle is from the guy Lawrence J. Peter, who is professor of education in California. And his point was, you know, when you're good at a job, you get promoted. So once you stop getting promoted, that probably means you're not good at that job anymore. Right. And 
when, what it means is like all our organizations, we kind of rise to a level of incompetence, right? Everyone that is operating at a certain job level is operating at their kind of level of incompetence because they were able to do all the jobs really well below that. And that's why they got promoted. And eventually, you, you know, you peter out. So this is something I kind of keep in the back of my head of like, okay, I think I'm doing okay um, and doing this job well, uh, but making sure I'm not uh, part of the problem and, and making things uh, worse. Um, and the reason I chose this pipeline was because this was going to allow me to stay operational, stay working on ships, stay working with sailors and being able to interact and try and make a difference every day to, you know, do something to help, you know, even if it's one sailor, uh, you know, one person making them enjoy the Navy and making the Navy that much better. I think that that's super admirable. And you hear that from a lot of people who choose to stay in. And I, I respect that a lot. My question would be, how do you measure that? How do you measure the impact of your change and, and the things that you're doing? Because more often than not, you know, if you can measure it, it's probably not going to be something that you see. No, uh, that, that's always a hard thing to get because really the true measure, you know, I, you know, I left my squadron two years ago, uh, almost two years ago. Really the difference is going to be is how many of those junior officers that I was able to train and mentor stick around for squadron command. And the, because the problem is, is, and you know, I'm talking very Naval aviation centric, but that's where my experience lies is, we, we had this kind of run for a while where, you know, a lot of junior officers were getting out and it's because they look at their commanding officers and they're like, doesn't look like COs having fun. Like that's not a job I aspire to. Um, I felt like in my squadron, I was kind of, you know, I think my, my squadron saw that I was enjoying myself and I was, you know, I had hard decisions to make, but I was able to do it um, with a smile on my face. And, you know, if now, a couple of those, you know, again, even if one of those JOs sticks around and sticks around for squadron command and can make a difference because they're like, you know what, you know, I saw Farva stick around and do his job. That's where it's going to be. Right. So how is it measured? It's, it's not measured in days. It's going to be measured in years. Um, but, you know, even the last week, you know, it's always careful on, on social media, about. I always feel like kind of going down too much of the humble brag. Rob, but like you know, recently, and it was actually two days ago, they just released um, the new results for the most recent group of aviators that were selected for squadron command. And a couple, you know, a couple of my department heads were on that list. Um, and, you know, one reached out to me and said, Hey, like I'm here because of, of kind of the guidance you gave me early on in your career. Like, I mean, that, that's something that just that comment, right. will keep me going for the next two years easily. Um, and I've been fortunate that I've, I've had a couple of those. I had a, another sailor pretty recently just grad, get commissioned as an ensign and is going to head down to flight school. And, and I felt, you know, probably a couple of conversations, hopefully I had with him, um, outside the jet as I was getting back from flying, help make a difference. Um, and that it's, it's those little, that's all I need is, you know, those onesies, twosies and seeing those people succeed down the line is what's going to uh, make the, the difference, you know, yeah. How to measure on a day-to-day -day basis. You can't, um, but you just have to really go with your gut feeling like, am I making a difference today? I think I am. I, I think I've done something 
um, and then keep going with that. And then every once in a while, something will pop up and that will, man, that will keep your fire burning for a while. I think people saying those types of things is absolutely a motivator and, and is a great measure. Um, like you said, even though you may not be able to like check on it every day, it kind of comes back along and um, throws some, some gas on the fire, so to speak. You talked about some hard decisions that you had to make at, at the squadron level as a commanding officer seeing you like preparing to go into like that, like kind of on steroids, what kinds of decisions are you worried about making and maybe what type of leadership philosophy are you looking to bring uh, to the boat? Well, let's start with that. I think that second part is probably, actually, no, we can talk about that first part. Like really there's no decisions I'm worried about making one uh, there's a little bit of a secret as an executive officer. I don't really make decisions, right? That's the commanding officer is the one making the decisions. I'm there to advise him or her and let them know, you know, what I think and try and go. But, you know, there, there's a lot of smart people on an aircraft carrier and it's just leveraging off of each person's expertise. And that's really what I, I, I've got to keep in mind um, as, a, you know, as in a squadron, you know, I had, I had, six department heads that worked for me as, as well as the executive officer, you know, so I could be in there truly a little bit more um, and on the trust but verify spectrum, you know, I, I had to be a little bit more in the verify than trust as they're still learning their job, you know, but on an aircraft carrier, you know, there, there's a bunch of senior people that have been doing their particular jobs for a long time and know how to do it well. And I've got to swing more, way more into the trust uh, vice verify. Cause I, if I try to verify and micromanage, you know, there's not enough time in a day to do that with, with that many departments and that many people on an aircraft carrier. Um, and so leveraging off of their expertise and, and if they're going to try, if they're enforcing a decision that maybe I don't agree with or, or recommending a decision is, you know, okay, Hey, let's start pulling the thread about that and having a harder discussion. But for the most part, if, you know, if they're making a, a, a decision, it's, probably uh, an informed decision. So as far as like the leadership philosophy, and that's something I'm really still wrapping my head about because in the squadron with, v with VFA 154, I had 250 sailors and, and officers. Um, and I, I, I knew everyone's name. I knew how to engage with every single person in my squadron. I knew kind of what made them tick. I knew what kind of for most of them, I probably knew what sports team they liked that we could talk about whatever happened that last weekend, right? Like I knew different ways to engage um, everyone. Um, but again, with 3,500 people, that's going to be a much harder task to, to, to get after. But my always my goal, especially on deployment, was hey, if I can make it was kind of the rules of ones, hey, if I can make one FOD walk down, if I can visit one work center, have one meaningful conversation with a sailor a day, and then spend 15 minutes in the books uh, studying something and, and making myself better. That was kind of my measure of day that I have a successful day. And so I think it's just kind of still keeping that same mindset of getting up from my desk, uh, which is always the easy comfort blanket to be. I can just sit behind a, a big pile of folders and check emails and do all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I definitely lead better on my feet is getting stood up, getting out of my office and going, as you talked about, like there's a lot of spaces on the carrier, you know, just going to get myself lost. 
Um, because if all of a sudden there's a, a you know a random captain walking around looking lost, that's a good way to get a sailor's attention um, and, and start a conversation. Be like, hey, sir, are you lost? And I'll be like, yes, yes, I am lost. Where am I? And tell me about it. Um, and now I can you know start engaging them on what their jobs are. You know, and there's a lot of questions. I've you know what icebreakers do I need to have as I'm going around and talking to sailors? Obviously, easy ones. Where are you from? Um, you know, hey, why did you join the Navy? You know, what books you're reading? I'll take your feedback. Like, what you know, what were questions that were asked of you of, of leaders that got you kind of talking to them easier? That's a good question. <laughs> um, you're putting me on the spot here. I, I'm supposed to be the one interviewing. Um, I, I, I'm not going to be able to think of something specifically, but. I will say on the boat, I think that it was extremely encouraging just the presence of senior leadership in the spaces because we, during that time, had a uh, you know, variety of leadership uh, come and go and, and not even just at like the, the top level XO and the CO, but also in the, the departmental level being like at a FOD walk down in the hangar bay or on the flight deck and your your maintenance officer is right there with you like doing it like that that's just cool and you get to like coke and joke for a few minutes and it kind of removes this invisible boundary that that tends to exist in people's head that's like oh you know you only see so and so at DRB or um, you know, at captain's mass, that's like when we see the captain, that, that wasn't the case for us, but that anything that kind of just removes that barrier. And I think it starts with presence. I, I think that that hits the nail on the head. I mean, we'd come down and see uh, several high ranking officers, like in the gym with us in the hangar bay. And like, that's, that's fun. Um, oh, you know, did you see XO putting this up on the squat rack or, you know, just, just coking and joking that that kind of stuff is funny and yeah, um, yeah. kind of Jack, builds I, that rapport. Yeah. I, I definitely plan on, uh, you know, there's going to be some sort of uh, Liberty chit or something for if anyone can beat my 2k row when I get on the ship, I'm definitely going to be going after, uh, you know, that's one of the ways I lead, right. Is getting in there and, and getting dirty and doing stuff. Um, but you know, you're right. Like the presence thing is, is such an important thing. And that was always one of the disheartening things. And, I don't feel like I was that, like that great at it. I, I do have some very introverted parts of me. Like everyone thinks I'm an extrovert and I can come across that way as a big personality, but you know, walking into a room of people I don't know was hard. And I always tell a story of like, so when I became in my, my first squadron as a junior officer, um, they made me the line division officer and the line division is where we have all our plane captains. So it's like all your most junior sailors that you know most of them have only been in the navy for six months they're brand new um and i you know i think i had probably 40 airmen and they made me line divo after about i think i would have been in the squadron maybe about nine months so you know it was pretty early on for the division officer tour and i'm like all right i'm the lieutenant i'm gonna walk into the the line shack which is kind of this building that we have just offset from the hangar where they all hang out during the day when they're not launching jets and i'm like i'm go announce my presence line you know, and I walk in the door, open the door. And it's like, man, if there had been a record plane, you would have heard the record scratch and like 40 airmen are just staring at me. And it's like, all of a sudden I'm like, uh, uh, uh you know, don't know what to do. And I just pretty much like jet to the back of the, the room and go find my chief to, you know, learn this job. Right. 
it's a skill. That's a skill to learn how to walk into, you know, you think, yeah, you're the officer. I'm walking into a bunch of junior enlisted. That should be easy. It's not, it's intimidating. And it just, you just have to kind of get to the point where you be comfortable getting in there. And I would sit down and put my feet up and just start kind of asking a couple questions. And man, once you can get one or two people asking questions, you know, it just blows up and then you can really get good dialogue um, going. And, and so even later in my career, as I was a CEO walking around and I had a, a, an AT who had just come from another squadron and, you know, I was popping, just doing my kind of daily popping into their work center on the carrier and checking in with them and, and chatting with them about stuff. And he was like, sir, I have never seen a CEO this much in my career. And like, in a way that like broke my heart, right. Cause that shouldn't be said. So I didn't feel like I was doing anything outside the norm. Um, but apparently it was right. And I was like, this is such an easy thing to do. It literally takes sometimes five minutes. Sometimes I would end up spending an hour in there. Um, that's an hour better spent than sitting at my desk doing paperwork. I'll take that any day. Right. And that's, again, I think the, that's going to be my, my key to success is, is getting around and, and walking um, and doing it and, and, and get buy-in too. Cause I think with a squadron, you know, as we talk about leadership philosophies, the other part too is like, you know, squadron has a lot less kind of jobs. And I think everyone, it's not that much separation from what their job is to launching an aircraft. Like they can, they can see it on a daily basis of what they're doing and how an aircraft goes off the front end of carrier uh, in a squadron level, because we just don't have that many, that diverse of jobs, but you know, on a carrier right now, we have literally every, almost every job in the Navy, um, and you know, actually it's like, I think the full Navy strength right now is like around 350,000, um, people and an aircraft carrier has 3,500 people, right? Like an aircraft carrier has 1% of the total population of the Navy, right? Like that's not an insignificant figure. And you have people, the CSs cooking food, you have, you know, the retail specialists, the ones running the ship store, right? You know, cutting hair, like these jobs. And it's getting them to understand that every single job that they do is vital to getting an aircraft off the front end. And you'd be like, well, me cooking food, you know, how does that make a difference? And, um, you know, one, a food is a full force multiplier. Uh, I don't like flying, uh, hungry. That's for one. But you know, when I was on the, on the Theodore Roosevelt, as we were in Guam, like one of the things that we were kind of struggling with there for a little bit is we couldn't, we didn't have enough culinary specialists on the carrier to like fully, get the kitchens up and running. Right. So, you know, eliminating, you're like, Hey, like this is a pretty, pretty good example, but um, Joe Byerly who runs the from the green notebook uh, blog and podcast, which is, um, you know, really good, highly recommended uh, listen, especially for anyone that's in the military, but even not, he has a bunch of civilian guests. And he talks about how one of his Sergeant majors uh, at his army command said, Hey, like you define your, your, distance from what they call the X, right? And the X is where the actual operation happens. Um, and that there, the meaning is, hey, you need to understand that what your job does supports, you know, that guy kicking in the door, being able to do their job. And I'm, you know, I'm going to steal from, from him um, pretty blatantly and be like, hey, you need to define what your distance from the cat shot is on an aircraft carrier, right? Like you are on this aircraft carrier, because that directly affects an aircraft going off the front end with ordnance to do the mission that we've been tasked with. I had a 
kind of a strange experience on the boat. We were out to sea and we had the the whole air wing out with us. And coming from the boat perspective, we are very disconnected from kind of leadership. And, you know, like you said, there's so many diverse jobs and so many people, it's hard to really kind of connect. And I had several friends that were in one of the Hilo squadrons that were on board and we were just kind of like BS and after work, like they had come down to my shop and we were playing Uno just after work and the little lounge that we had made. And all of a sudden we get this like knock at the door and there's two pilots from their, their squadron. They're like, Oh, we, we heard you guys were playing Uno down here. And I was just like, well, come on in, I guess. Like I, and that was so cool to see kind of what was available at the squadron level um, where that rapport was there. And, and so it, it definitely can be done. And I think it's harder to replicate at, at scale, but I, I think that it can be done. And, and even you talked about distance from the X, even from my perspective as working in aviation maintenance, I'm not on the flight deck, but I'm literally repairing an item that's going on to jets every single day but at the same time unless i like went out of my way to go up to the flight deck for just like some random reason you could never see sunlight if you really wanted to you could just stay below decks and really kind of just do your part just show up to work on deployment it's tough sometimes you got to get into kind of a routine and just like put your head down and like not think too much about your circumstances but feeling plugged into that mission, um, it really gives you that sense of accomplishment. And part of my due diligence and, and research on you, uh, and research meaning uh, a couple quick Google searches mostly, um, I read an article that you had written um, about talking about AI replacing pilots in the Navy. Talk to us a little bit about that what was the goal of the article and what are your thoughts and feelings about the space? Yeah. So that article came, there was uh, some trials uh, a couple years back and what they were trying to do is it was all kind of through computer simulations of, of creating a, you know, aircraft that was being flown by AI and have it compete against a actual pilot flying, um, you know, this virtual reality and having them engage with each other. And, you know, the AI like dominated um, the competition. And of course, you know, that kind of came out, everyone was all up in arms. And, you know, there's a lot of artificiality that was involved. And, you know, I just kind of jumped in and, and pointed out of some like, you know, hey, I think here's some some things to look at um, that jumped out at me as, as I did it. And you know, I was doing this on Twitter um, which is kind of the easiest way for me to get my thoughts down because my brain works at about 280 characters uh, at, a, at a snippet before I kind of blind squirrel off in another direction. Um, yeah, so I had just kind of thrown some stuff together on Twitter. And then uh, Tyler from The Drive kind of had reached out to me and was like, hey, you want to expand on this a little bit? Um, and really, I was able just to kind of flesh out that article a little bit over the weekend um and, and publish it um which was it was a great experience it's probably i am not i have always struggled with writing it's something i'm terrible at which is why i try to do it um is something to, to get better at and uh, you know that was actually a pleasurable experience because i was writing about something i i 
somewhat was familiar with um, as well. And, you know, there, there's this huge schism between kind of like the drones taking over or and pilots losing their job. Like we're a far off way from that happening. Um, you know, like it, it's going to be a while before you get on an airline, right? And there's going to be, there's no pilots up front flying that. I, I don't, I don't think the um, really the general public is even comfortable with that. That being said, you'd be surprised, like really how little flying, right? We pilots do like autopilot does quite a bit of stuff. Um, and I was a big naysayer. Um, and, and I think the typical hubris, I, I actually just got done reading two really good books um, that I've have in the last couple of months that have actually kind of gotten me thinking about this again. Uh, first one was uh, Never Mind, We'll Do It Ourselves by um, Alec Beerbar and uh, this Colonel Mark Cooter retired. And they were a big part of starting the uh, MQ-9 uh, Predator, or M like would have been MQ-1 Predators, you know, prior to 9-11. Um, and which were a huge, that, that, that unmanned system, you know, kind of becoming prevalent in theater. Um, and then the other one was flying Camelot. Uh, I just finished a couple of days ago about kind of the devel development of F-15 and F-16. And, you know, the common theme you have with this is, you know, historically we as aviators are very, we just, we don't want unmanned platforms, right? Because it's like, Hey, that's taking my job. Like that's what I pride myself on that I'm in the cockpit, you know, doing this. Um, with my wife's scarf flapping in the wind, um, like the pilots of, of yore. Um, but hey, we like we need to get on board with technology and what these systems can can bring. And that's kind of how I approach that article of there are some things, you know, AI is definitely not ready for prime time, right? On just throwing an aircraft out there. And I think that's another misconception, right? Every unmanned aerial system or man, whatever drones, whatever terminology we're using, like there's always a person in the loop still doing something with that system, right? There's very few things that are just out on their own, not operating without any, you know, public, um, or I'm sorry, person actually kind of in there operating it uh, as well. And that was kind of my point a little bit with that article was that, you know, AI, I think, kind of fused with what a human can do. You know, AI can help me do something quicker. And the, the best way to, to really show this is as I'm, you know, flying around and going back to we talking about G's, you know, that's a high stressful environment, right? It takes me, it takes effort for me to get my head moved over to a direction to find the enemy and using my systems, get my weapons cued onto that aircraft. And then now, even once I have an aircraft locked up to where I could shoot a missile or gun, I now have to in come back into the, my cockpit or look into my joint helmet cueing system and kind of analyze all my parameters, my airspeed, my altitude, the Gs I'm pulling, the how fast we're crossing, like just tons of different uh, mathematic kind of things that are going on. Kind of take a snapshot at a time and be like, yes this is what we'd call a valid employment. Like if I shoot this missile, it's going to have the best chance to intercept the enemy, right? I'm having to do this while I'm pulling G's, yanking my head over my shoulder and all those kind of things, right? If AI can help me solve that system as I'm fighting and kind of take the workload off of me to make that decision, you know, I'm still in the cockpit, I'm still pulling the trigger, but now I have this extra kind of layer to help kind of uh, process and calculate all those things. 
that's a good thing. That's something I want. If that makes me more lethal on the aircraft, makes my job in the aircraft easier, I'm all aboard um, with it. Um, you know, as a future, as we move into like the loyal wingman is something, as we move into whatever the sixth generation aircraft is going to be, you know, if I now have two little buddies, like in the uh, Konami Life Force game, I used to play on the Nintendo, whereas I'm flying in my aircraft and I have these two other separate aircraft that are flying with me that I can control and move and expand my airspace and where, you know, have more missiles to shoot any of those kind of things. Again, um, you know, I'm all about that kind of stuff. Um, and getting uh, on board. Yeah. Do I still want to be flying an aircraft? Yeah. Cause that's, it was, it's, that's how I've defined myself for the last 20 years. You know, one day is my, is my daughter going to not look at me and be like, you know what? I want to do the same thing my dad did. You know, I would like for her to have that opportunity too. And I think she, I think she will like, there's going to be super hornets around for quite a bit. You know, the F-35 is going to be kind of around quite a bit. I think the next aircraft, whatever shape or form it comes into is still going to have people flying it um, uh, you know, a fair amount and how much we, uh, uh layer that. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, it was kind of just an interesting thought experiment. And then just also kind of explaining some of the artificialities that allowed, you know, the AI to kind of dominate, um, that, that competition, um, things that we're just not able to do, uh, in training, the main one being able to like do a heads on gunshot, you know, that, in a real, if two aircraft flying at each other, point their noses at each other, you know, that's how we run into each other and how unfortunately we've lost aviators in the past. Hence we've made rules that prevent that from occurring um, as well. But in that situation, you know, that there was no training rules. And so the AI was able to capitalize on that kind of environment, you know, a lot better than the, the, the pilot who was actually kind of flying the VR system. Um, was and that's just kind of also look, us looking inwards on like okay what limits do we have based on how we can train um, safely um, but still kind of maximize it, us taking shots or uh, weapons envelopes well and i think a lot of what you're talking about too uh, really points to a kind of a lack of education about what AI and like machine learning actually is. You know, we see these movies, uh, you know, iRobot and like just these very futuristic movies. And people think that that represents computers and things like taking over the world. But realistically, what AI and like machine learning is, is it's code based rules that are programmed by humans and using past experiences to improve over time. And it's it's not really the thing thinking for itself. It's just kind of a, a closed loop improvement system that is based on the past. Um, so yeah, I, I think that that's really interesting that the perception of, of what that is, is very misguided maybe. Um, but that seems to be where the future of the military is going. Um, uh, some friends of mine that are still on my ship were talking about a UAV shop being put into the boat. And then I just, I don't know a ton about it, but uh, a remote control boat, like a, a full-size boat being remote controlled, what do you have any thoughts about that or? Um... Yeah, this, this is where kind of, I'm definitely not the expert. I mean, we're moving towards, you know, there's some thoughts to uh, MQ-25 is going to be a, a unmanned drone uh, refuel right now, mainly for refueling off the carrier. Um, 
that's fine. Like hey, the less that we have to use super Hornets to, to tank is always a good thing. Um, and then, yeah, unmanned ships, right. If I can just have another ship out there with more missiles, always a better thing, right. I can never have too many, too many pieces of ordnance, uh, to shoot. Um, I don't know exactly where we're moving with all those. There's definitely some smarter people in the space, um, that, you know, are, are looking into that, uh, that hard, but Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm all about like, Hey, let's, let's think smartly and how we can use these, um, you know, to, to maximize the damage we can do. There's, we're not short of any opportunities to improve. That's for sure. Um, especially looking at some of the, the technology that's even used in the super Hornets while still very sophisticated. A lot of the stuff that's running it is, 80s technology really and that is scary to think about knowing how lethal those things are and, and incorporating the idea of how reliable something is over that length of time here we are you know this far into the future and still using that type of thing it kind of bodes well for the future of the military i think uh you talked a little bit earlier about retaining people in the military in general. If we're, let's say, 10, 15 years into the future here and we're working with a much more remote-based military, what do you think about military manning as a whole? And this isn't doesn't have to be expressed views or anything, but where do you think that the, the population requirements for the military is going to be in 10, 15 years, because we've been on a very, uh, I don't know about gradual, but a reduction for a very long time, um, whether that's, you know, forced or, or not, maybe just people want to get out. Um, I think that the, the DOD has recognized that the, the change in the retirement system to the blended retirement system is very much geared towards people who are not looking to make the military a career. What do you think about that? So the first thing that usually always comes up, right, when we start talking about retaining people is always the money piece of, you know, and, and really just comes down to like, we're never going to be able to pay people enough to match what they get in the civilian life, right? We have to figure out the ways to keep people in and it's not based on necessarily monetary. Now we can definitely use monetary to, to move the needle that, that, that can make the difference uh, for a number of people. Um, but that can't be our only bag that we have or trick that we have in our bag. And it's, and so one, it goes back to like, Hey, we just gotta, we want people to, to want to like to be in the Navy or the military, right? Definitely easier said than done um, by by a far way. And that's go, you know, goes back to my, my thought process of like, you know, there, there are things that are frustrating about being in the military. And that was the nice thing about being a, a CEO of a squadron is I had a little bit more kind of control and I could somewhat, you know, protect maybe a little bit of a strong word, but I could kind of minimize those frustrations, you know, for the people in my squadron. Right. So while they at least were in VFA one fifty four you know, they kind of saw, uh, you know, a better run organization that kind of took care of them and they're like, okay, Hey, this, you know, I've, I can see how this can be done well. And then they can take that in the future. Hopefully, you know, that, that's me, how I viewed it. And that, that's the key, right? If everyone is out there trying to make their, you know, the people that they work for their life better, you know, that makes, 
makes a difference. Um, even though as we moved and going back to, even if we moved to unmanned systems and all that, we still need the people, you know, and especially in the Navy, like we need people for damage control, right? Even an unmanned ship, there's still going to have to be people that are going to have to get on there and, you know, maintain and work on that ship to keep it running. You know, you can't just put a vessel out to, to in the ocean for six months and expect that thing to be working flawlessly. It ain't going to happen. So we still need, we still need people. And, and I think we've learned that lesson too, is as we try to kind of dial back the manning on sometimes, um, you know, the, there, there is a sweet spot where you can kind of undercut a little bit. And as we're trying to build more ships and we need to build more ships for a stronger Navy, you know, we're going to need the people to man those ships. Uh, there's no getting around that um, as well. But then after that is like, okay, well, what can we do to improve people's life, you know, away from when they're from the ship and, um, you know, giving people better education opportunities, giving them some more, kind of flexibility or um, buy-in or feel like they're part of the process of where they get to live, where they interact, you know, those type of things like that could that make a difference too. Like there might, might be a good contingent of people that don't need to be centrally located at this base or, you know, that we can disperse them a little bit more and they can work from home. Um, you know, the, the, we, we've got to really start spreading that net a, a little bit more and make it uh, uh, flexible because, you know, I think what people get out of the Navy for is they just, you know, don't like the bureaucracy of the Navy, you know, family is always the hugest one, um, you know, moving quite a bit has a lot of strain on the family. You know, how do we take care of that? Um, I don't have any of these answers, right? Like I, I'm always kind of racking my brain as well. Um, and I can only control it at my small level. And that's kind of really where the, my focus always, uh, is in, but there's definitely people always kind of feel like, I've, you know, we're looking hard and we're trying to make changes to, um, to change how someone's day-to-day -day interaction is. Cause going back, it's not going to be the money. That's not what's going to keep people in the money, uh, in the, in the military never is going to be, it's going to be all these other factors that once they add up, you know, that is enough to offset, um, you know, what they are able to go make on the, uh, the outside. Yeah. And it's, it, I think that you're right in saying that it's not, uh, it's not the money that's keeping people there because I think that there is a disconnect in between like a similar type of role, uh, like outside of the military, I guess, in terms of like the requirements, like, you know, leaving your family and like all of those things that you can't really put a price on. However, the, the salary of the, the Navy is really not bad by any means. I, I think when you incorporate all of the benefits that do come from it, granted, not everybody gets to access a lot of things. If you're deployed all the time, you may not be able to access the same education benefits that somebody else is accessing. But uh, like I think that you pointed out, kind of drilling into some of those other features that the military can offer, whether it be TA or maybe some more flexibility with like stationing, uh, location, et cetera. Um, and, and I think that the big one too is fostering that sense of, you know, people don't stay in for 20, 30, 40 years because they're like, eh, I don't have anything else to do. They're, they're serving their country. I think that that's the ultimate. And that is something that 
I, I think should be fostered to if the, the military is thinking about retaining people long term. Yeah. Shout it from the mountain job, brother. Like I'm waiting <laughs> on that. Yeah. Again, easier said than done. Cause and then because it, it can become so man, you you know, you're your leader and you're heading down to your shop and you're like, hey, how much do you love serving your country today? Right. When you're on like month four of deployment looking at the ocean, and it's like, oh, you just get a bunch of eye rolls, right? Like you got to be careful how how much you wield that. Um, because it can become like overplayed and, and everything, right? And it's like at least said, hey, can I figure out how today I can kind of get your buy-in? Um, and then that starts adding up over time. Um, because you know, one of my other kind of little theories I have too, and I, I try not to use being a parent at that much as a as a metaphor for being um as a leader, but there there are some similarities. And and I think back of like like when you first have a like a baby it's rough, right? Like you're up all night, you know, just having to feed and change diapers. And like, it, it's, it is exhausting. And they're, you know, they're, they're hanging out with your baby at three in the morning as they're just screaming their head off. You're like, what have I signed up for? Um, but now as my oldest one is eight, like, I don't, I have very, like very faint memories of that. Right. But I have very crystal clear memories of the times that she has given me a hug and said she loves me or, you know, these like awesome moments with her. And I think our, I think the human brain is just wired that way, right? Like we don't, we don't remember bad things as crystal clear as we remember good things because that's how we, we survive. We've got to be able to forget bad things. That's the only way we can kind of keep moving forward. Um, and like deployment uh, or your time in the military, I think becomes like that of, Day to day, there was probably some really annoying things on deployment, but those things fade over time. But you remember playing Uno down on the mess decks with, uh, you know, some, you know, some buddies or that one, you know, I was, man, I was in Guam and sitting there and getting to actually see the green flash as the sun went down that night, you know, as my entire squad had just promoted um, two junior officers to uh, lieutenant, you know, we were all hanging out there. It was a beautiful day outside. The sun went down. That, and I mean, like the, no doubt that mythical green flash was there. Like that is a moment that is seared in my brain. Those are the things you remember. That's what gets you back. You know, now all of a sudden when it's time to sign up, time to do longer, you're like, you got to remember those moments because all this other bad stuff. So if I can minimize the number of bad things that happen to someone that makes that even easier and give them those good crystal clear moments, those are the things that are going to rent it, re uh, resonate and, uh, and keep them in, um, uh, for longer as they, as they look, um, as they look back. I also don't think that it's a coincidence how many of those powerful, strong memories that you associate with the military have people involved. Like you almost never have something that's really like good where it was just you, you know, and that's maybe anecdotal to life. Uh, life is about the relationships, your family, your, your close friends. But I think that anybody who's gotten out, even if they're the saltiest dog out there, they will probably have a story about a time where one specific person really went out on a limb for them or, or did something and that's what's memorable. So, um, and that goes back to your comments about leadership and, and getting involved and, and all that good stuff. Uh, I'm not familiar with this green flash thing though. Uh, you never heard of the green flash? Oh, no, man. we're not so, talking about superhero, right? 
<laughs> no, not no, not not the uh, not the DC comic book. So oh, the Green Lantern. Just, that's the other guy. <laughs> yeah, Green Lantern. Right. Yeah. And then there's the Flash. The as the sun goes down, and there's you know the physics of the way the like the rays move and the spectrum of colors or whatever. But there is as it's stuff like right that last half second as the sun is going below the horizon, you can get you can sometimes see and it have it better seen on the ocean right because the way the like the the light rays move but you'll get all of a sudden this like this green flash and and it's one of those things like people tell you and it's almost like one of those things that like someone's playing a joke on you right you're like hey just stand out there and watch the sunset you'll see a green flash and you'll stand out there day after day after day and you're like i don't now i look like an idiot because i'm just going up here all this time but um I, I would say like that day, I mean, it was like, it was like a lighthouse of green light. It was so bright. And I mean, we all were standing there and, we're, and we were even like, let's, this is the day, this is a day. And I mean, it was like, uh, it was amazing. It wasn't, this isn't something particular to Guam or like. No, no, it's no, I, I think you can see it anywhere. I, I'd have to get on the, the Google machine. Said it said it's, it's best seen though on the ocean because I think the way the light rays refract i'm definitely getting way over my skis in the physics uh of lights refraction here but that's i think that's part of it so check it out next time you're on the boat on the water and sunset look for the green flash not saying it's also going to happen every day it's got to also be you know clear day and all this you know a bunch of other phenomena on the hat this might be worth one more enlistment at this rate i this sounds cool i i've watched a lot of sunsets or just get or just get your own boat you can never you know and then well that too yeah yeah but the best boat is 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 someone else's boat is what i've been told yeah i've heard that uh yeah i this is cool i've never even seen or heard of this so i'll need to look into that and do some reading um i want to talk a little bit about your extracurriculars um one of the i've mentioned a couple of the things that you had written about but like your you're published. You've got articles written scattered all, all around the internet about um, you writing and kind of sharing your thoughts. You've talked about being active on Twitter and kind of sharing your opinions there. Um, according to your LinkedIn, that that was also another part of my research. You're a co-owner of Board and Brush. Uh, maybe not currently. Is that yeah? That was is that up to date? Uh, no. So that was that was a form you know former uh, Board and Brush. So uh, Board and Brush uh, is actually a franchise and it was a business my wife and I um, started when we were stationed in um, my last duty station in Lemoore when I was at the XO and the CO. And so Board and Brush, it's a company based out of uh, Wisconsin and it's uh, kind of the paint and sip model um, where you go like a date night or a girls night out. You go to this place and you either paint a picture. We made wood signs. So you'd like make a wood sign, stencil it, paint it. And while you're doing it, you're drinking a beer, you hang out for three hours. It's kind of something to do. Yeah. Um, and so my wife and I had gone on a, a you know date night together in Reno uh, before we moved down to California and had checked this place out. And you know, my wife, um, and this kind of can wrap into some of our earlier conversations. You know, my wife was, um, you know, she was a high performing individual before she became a military spouse. Right. And she's we used to work on campaigns. She was actually in between working on a presidential com- campaign when we met, um, when we started dating. Um, we long distance dated as she was getting her master's in San Francisco while I was stationed in Fallon. Uh, I was driving back and forth. To, you know, and so 
you know, she, she has a desire to, to, to want to, to serve and also, you know, be a part of the community uh, as kind of the small town girl she is. And we were looking, you know, so we came back from that and she's like, I think this would be really great in downtown Hanford, which is the town right next to Lamore. And for people that have been to Hanford, it's, it's actually really cool. It's in the central Valley. This kind of got a cool old, you know, fifties vibe to it in the downtown area. It's got like the big, nice kind of like grassy area and stuff, but like the downtown that like, there's just not a whole lot to do. Like it's kind of a, a lot of the businesses that closed down or anything. And, and my wife was like, Hey, I, you know, I want to be able to do something while you're at work um, as well. Right. Like you know, she just didn't want to stay at home, which is completely reasonable. And going back to, as we we're talking about a way to try and keep people in the military, being able to keep spouses employed and have them have opportunities and that is something that is definitely being talked about on, you know, as we've changed tax laws, talked about, um, you know, their certifications transfer, like, you know, the federal government is doing things to help enable that. Again, I'm not fully smart on it, but, you know, that that is probably one of the other biggest reasons people get out of the military, right, is because their spouse, spouse's job becomes a priority over over the, uh, the military members, um, job. And sometimes those, sometimes those two aren't compatible and that's just something we got to kind of really keep working hard at. And it worked out, you know, as we were moving down to Hanford, as I said, I was planning on retire. So we we're like, all right, well, Hey, let's start this business. And then I'm going to retire and we can kind of live here for a couple more years as we kind of figure out where we actually want to plant roots one day. And so we, you know, applied for the franchise and got accepted and, and, uh, opened it um, kind of prior to me actually showing up to the squadron and it worked out. I had kind of some, a little bit of training time in between where I could, I, I was almost a full-time carpenter for a couple months as we were like building out our space, um, and putting it together. And it was, it was a great experience other than, you know, the bureaucracy of trying to start a small business in California. Um, you know, it, it was great. And, and what was awesome is like, you know, my wife became, pretty popular in the community because she brought this like business to the downtown area. It was something for people to go do. Um, and people were always constantly thanking her on like, you know, thanks for bringing this to like downtown Hanford, right? Like this is part of this, like us trying to revitalize and bring something to the local economy. And that was a cool, that was a really cool experience and, um, you know, valuable, I think, and, and allowed us to, to do something. You know, when we started it, we, we and, you know, and I'm about to start my, you know, XO and CO tours, which I knew I was going to be deploying. I knew we were going to be busy. We had two kids at home, um, you know, at the time when we first moved there, they were five and two, right? So we had two little ones at home and we luckily had a pretty good support network of friends and family um, around the area that we'd known. Um, and that helped kind of alleviate the scrape. But when we started it, we were by you know, we're going to look back at this time a couple of years from now, we're going to be like, we are batshit crazy for trying to, to do this. And there were some, there were some definitely some stressful moments um, to do it, but you know, that's part of being uh, married and we're, you know, we're both like to get out of our comfort zone and we, we acknowledge that about each other. And, and one of those things that helped definitely made our marriage stronger and allowed her to do something. And then that was part of the conversation. And of course, kind of COVID happened and that really, through a curveball into opening a business, especially one that serves alcohol um, and where people gather in a small place. Right. And I was on deployment as all this is going on. So again, God bless my wife, right. She's dealing with two kids, COVID unknowns of that I'm in deployment. 
in you know living in a hotel room in Guam, also not know what's going on and balance and all that, right? You know, th- there were stressful times, and then when that was also about the time we kind of made the decision that kind of the pendulum was swinging the other way and like, Hey, we're going to prioritize my career again and allow me to pursue this opportunity um, that the Navy's presenting me with to go on the nuke pipeline. And so, you know, we ultimately sold the business, um, you know, it's still open and, and thriving there in Hanford um, to do it. You know, and so my, you know, my wife's, she's eager. She's always you know, now that we're here on the East coast, she's kind of trying to figure out what her, her next step is. And, and I, and I, I, I sympathize with, with you know, the spouses of military members. It's it's not easy, and, and how much they have to sacrifice um, and give up um, so that you know I can have a successful career. Um, and I'm and I'm thankful. That's I will tell people that that is the only reason I am in the Navy today is because of the amazing support that she has given me. Um, you know, my my daughters are are hanging in there. They're young enough. Um, I think them growing up in a military lifestyle. It's you know for lack of a better word, as a military brat, it's going to be better for them in the long run. Um, you know, it's going to strengthen their um, abilities and, you know, pave the road, uh, get you know, ready the child for the road and not the road for the child uh, kind of thing. You know, you know, we're making some hard decisions. And, and as it's something that we are constantly reassessing. So if in a couple of years, hey, my family says, hey, we, we can't hack this anymore. I'm, I'm done. Um, but, you know, but right now we're hacking it and thriving, um, as well. So the business was, was, a, was a great experience and, and taught us, uh, a lot, um, especially about you know, tax rules and liquor license rules in California. I knew, I, I knew I learned way more about that than I ever thought I would. Well, yeah. Highlight something incredibly important. If you're going to have any kind of longevity in the military is you, you really got to have, the home front taken care of and everybody on the same page and, and kind of fighting for the same thing. Cause you can easily get twisted around and um, it, the military demands a lot of you. It really does. Yeah. Uh, whenever, I, I, whenever I have someone's, you know, when I'm talking to a sailor or an officer and they're talking about getting out and if, you know, they, they're, they're number one reasons like I, what, you know, I'm like, Hey, you know, cause I always, I always ask people, right. Like you want to have that conversation. Like, Hey, why are you getting out? Hey, like, you know, my family, we just don't want to do this anymore. And, and like pretty much from then on, like I shut up, you know, like there's no, I'm not even going to try and convince you like, cause yeah, that's the number, number one thing, you know, the young sailor who's like, ah, F this, I don't know. I'm just going to move back home and, and find a job. I'm like, Hey, let's, uh, let's, let's talk about things. Let's, let's, let's figure out a plan for you. Um, but yeah, whenever, whenever someone makes a decision for family, like I'm, and that's one of my, also my pet peeves, you know, is people who, who kind of shit on someone who's getting out because their family and their family can hack it. And I'm like, Hey, hey man, everyone's situation is different. And I said, I have been extremely blessed with how um, awesome my wife has been. And she is, she blooms where she is planted. Um, she makes, I, I have dragged her to some, not the most desirable of locations and she, she thrives everywhere she goes. So, um, and she, drags me out of the house. You know, if when we were in Japan, I probably would have, I was tired on Friday coming back after our hard week in the office. And I just wanted to lay on the couch and she's like, no, we're in Japan. We're getting out of the house and we're going to go travel. And, you know, and it was always, a, it was always a good thing uh, that she did that. Cause if not, I would have just sat on the couch and watched TV all weekend and then gone back to my job on Monday and never actually seen Japan. So 
I'm yeah. thankful for her for that. I, I bring up the the board and brush thing in kind of context of we're talking a lot about retention in this conversation and keeping people in and or or at least getting people to what they're designed to be doing. I think that one of the most critical things to that that we haven't talked about yet is getting people engaged in stuff that they like to do outside the military. I'm not sure what it is, and I, I've mentioned this on several prior podcasts, but for some reason, I felt like there was a magnificent burden that and something that kept me from doing the stuff that I like to do while I was in the Navy. I just, I, I can't do that. I'm in and like, I just, I can't wait to get out so I can like do what I want to do. And like I, a part of that, I didn't even know what I wanted to do. So that was the first part of the problem. But I think that there's a larger lesson there around your life not actually being on hold because you're in the military. And I think that you represent that very well and like taking on, you know, you're, you're writing, you're like starting a business. What would your best advice be for people that are kind of like looking for that fulfillment outside the military? or like finding activities and stuff to fulfill them that are outside of their job. Yeah. It was the first, it took me a long time to get to the point I'm at. And I said, I, I was a shithead in my twenties and, and did not spend my time. Right. Um, a couple of different stories. So the first one, you know, I did an, a, almost a year in Afghanistan on a, what we call an individual augmentee. So I got kind of after my junior officer tour, um, I signed up to go, kind of work for the air force for a year. And that was a huge kind of turning point in my career. Um, and, you know, it was one of these that we were in the aircraft on this like five hour mission, nothing's going on I'm talking to the pilots. And I, I was like, yeah, I just been stationed a little more. And they're, they're like, Oh yeah. You're like near the Sequoias and you got Yosemite. That's like an hour and a half drive away. And I've been, I've been in Lemoore for like four years prior to that. And I was like, and it hit me. I was like, you know what? And I never went to either one of those places in that four years. Right. Cause I was just too busy, probably drinking on the couch, you know, hanging out with my buddies, wasting my time, you know, and that was a pretty big, I think mindset shift for me. So when I got back from Afghanistan and I was back in Lamore for a couple months, just getting recurrent on the F-18 before I moved up to Fallon, like, and it was like one morning I was hanging out on my couch with my buddy and it was a beautiful day outside and we're just sitting there watching NCIS or whatever bullshit, whatever was on TV. And I was like, dude, let's go on a hike. And he's like, yeah, let's do it. And we got in the car and drove to the Sequoias, which is literally an hour, not even almost an hour, you know, an hour drive and went on this awesome hike. And you know, it was like on my front doorstep. Right. So it's kind of taking advantages of, of that. I, I think the other so there's this movie called Sideways, uh, and it's about these two guys who go on this like uh, trip to the wine country. And he's telling the story. He's got this. He's a huge. Uh, was it Paul Giamatti? Who's kind of the character? Huge wine snob, like super smart at wine. He's talking uh, to his love interest, and they're talking about this like great bottle of wine he has, and he's talking about how. He's like, I'm waiting for the like the special occasion to drink that bottle of wine. And you know, the woman's like, when you drink that bottle of wine, that is the special occasion, right? Like that is that is the moment. And the movie ends with him like drinking it out of a styrofoam cup at a Popeyes, right? Like enjoying 
join that wine. I, I always, always kind of use that too of don't wait for that special, that right moment to have, right? Like having kids, all, all these kind of stuff, like there's never going to be a right moment. Like you just got to jump in and do it and find whatever you like and go after it. Now, here's where I'll kind of caveat that, right? And I think you hit on with the military of, I want my, I want my people in my squadron. I want them to have a life outside the military because that's what makes us grow, right? If you're just, you work all day, that's going to burn you out. Like you need to have a, a, a hobby outside of that. And, and if you're interested in finance, you know, investing, woodworking, working on cars, whatever that kind of stuff is, you know, go after it, do that. Problem is, is like, okay, if that starts taking away from your ability to do your job when you're at work, we need to have some hard conversations where your priorities are, right? Like I, I need you to be in the focus on the job with your mind there doing the work, you know, not kind of just biding your time in my squadron while you're kind of getting this other thing going. And, you know, when we started Born Brush, like I said, I had some time kind of before I started in the squadron that I could help out my wife, um, you know, as co-owners, building it out, getting it started. But when, you know, once I kind of got really into my XO job, you know, I, I had a stiff, uh, you know, we, we had that conversation. I'm like, Hey, like, I'm not going to be able to help with you because my focus is being the executive officer of the squadron. You know, we had that discussion um, and that made that difference. Um, but, you know, all the other stuff I do, I, it, it seems like a lot, but it's so spread out that, um, yeah, I just, it's more of like, I, every day I'm trying to make myself better. It's really, really comes down to, right? Like, what am I doing today to make myself a better version of myself than I was yesterday? Working out for me has always been a huge part of that. Um, you know, that's the best way for me to relieve stress, do something is getting to gym, throwing around heavy weight or, or pulling on a, on a, a rower. Um, Twitter has been a great way to kind of, for me to like, just kind of throw things against the wall and see what stick. That's what I've loved about Twitter is it's a way to just interact with people and flesh out, you know, my conversations, like, you know, me having this conversation with you, which is, you know, we were able to set up via Twitter you know, has allowed me to just kind of verbalize my thoughts that maybe I haven't had time to really sit down and, and have the introspection um, to do, right? Like all those kind of moments um, help out. And then every once in a while, like, hey, there's this something that's passionate about, like, you know, writing this article or something that all of a sudden kind of comes to me. That being said, I've got like three in the, in the hopper um, that are just staring at me in the face on that. I can't get through that. I like, I want to write these articles, but I'm so terrible at writing them that now it's just like this stress of like, Oh, you're not succeeding today because you didn't uh, write those articles. Um, and there, you know, there are people that are way more prolific than, than I am uh, as well. And all mine have been pretty, pretty close to the pin on what I do on a daily basis with my job anyway. So it's not that uh, huge of a stress. So, you know, to, to like, to really answer your question is like, you just need to get in there and do it. There's never going to be a right time. You wait for the right time. Next thing you know, it's, it's, it, it's passed, it's passed you by. I think that that hits the nail on the head. It's really hard to internalize that while you're in. Um, I know looking back on my time there, it was, it's the farthest thing from a waste, but because I learned so much and my experience was so positive in hindsight, but I, in terms of my own personal and professional development outside of the military, 
I, I wasted four years not working on and pursuing the things that I found interest in because of something invisible that that didn't actually exist. So I, um, I, I think that you're right. Uh, there isn't a right time. Yeah. And when people like when people ask me about my time at my at the Naval Academy, I wasted four years. Like, you know, I got an education and ultimately I, I became a naval aviator, which was my goal. But like I slept most of the day, you know, I went to class, slept, got up, went to the gym, worked out and went back to bed. Right. Like I didn't I wasn't an avid reader. I, I, I wasn't involved in really any sports. You know, I was kind of in a weird mental state. Um, you know, I had some kind of some mental depression struggles a little bit, but um, part of that was probably me not, you know, working as hard as I could have while I was there. And uh, like, I, I really look back at my time at the Naval Academy. And it's like, man, I had some great opportunities there and I just flushed them away because I didn't, I didn't take that chance. And, and that's one of those things that now kind of always in the back of my head of like, make your day worth it, make your day worth it. You know, Hey, I, I love a nap in the middle of the day and I still do it all the time. Uh, cause sleep is important. Uh, you know, rest is where we, that's where we grow. Uh, it's not the, in the gym when your muscles grow, it's not while you're awake that your brain grows. It's while you're sleeping. Right. So I do love me some rest, uh, as well, but it's, it's trying to take advantage of those, of those snippets of time when I, when I've got them. I want to close out here with two more questions. The first is, do you have any heroes? No, I don't. I look at, and, and the, the way to do this is I, I think I, I, so many snippets of, of everyone, right? Like you, you hear the, the old axiom of like, you kind of see bad things and you good things and you put those all in your toolbox. And, and I am definitely an amalgamation of like, everyone I've ever worked with. And, you know, I've, I've had some bad leaders and I've had some good leaders. Um, and I've taken snippets out of that. I, in some ways I will tell you my life as a CEO in some ways was almost a lot of things I did in a CEO was like very counter to what my previous CEOs had done. Right. Um, cause I think that resonated with me a little bit, um, more, but, um, no, I, 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 I kind of, look at everyone um with kind of a, a i'm trying to think of the eye like kind of a cynical eye right like i think everyone's got their good sides and their bad sides and you know a lot of go <laughs> also talk about you know it always goes back to me of i have messed up a lot of my stuff in my career um and i try to be very you know on twitter it's one of the things i really liked about twitter right is i can kind of like air like hey i'm i'm not I don't have all this stuff figured out. There's a lot of things I've screwed up. Um, and even though I've screwed these things up, I'm able to move on from that and learn from that. Right. Um, and that's what I'm trying to like, I, I really promote the like not fear of failure um, as well. So, you know, I, I like those kind of stories, but there's not definitely not a certain person I kind of like point at and be like, that's the person I want to want to be like, I am, I am a composite of so many different people and parts um, that I wouldn't even know where to begin. Fair enough. That's a good answer. You've mentioned reading a couple of times. What are you reading right now? Uh, so I uh, actually just finished up reading, uh, let's say Flying Camelot by Michael Hankins. Um, you know, I try and kind of bounce between fiction and nonfiction um, as much as I like nonfiction. 
Um, sometimes there's like, man, I, I, I just need something I can just sit down and like zone out for a while. So actually the other one I just got into is the, uh, um, independency series by, uh, John Scalzi, um, finished that up, uh, while I was on the, the carrier for 30 days, I actually got through quite a few books, um, with that, so that was actually been quite an enjoyable read. I do like my sci-fi. Um, so I think, uh, I think reading fiction is just as important as reading, uh, to nonfiction. I really need to take that to heart because I really thrust myself into just all sorts of like dry, dry business books. And I, I need an escape sometimes. So yeah. And, like, and, uh, and reading should be an enjoyable experience. Even, you know, sometimes reading a business book is enjoyable, right? Reading, you know, I do like to read a lot of biographies. I'm not like a leadership book guy. Like when people ask me like, what leadership books do you read? I'm like, I don't, like those kind of books they don't really uh, resonate with me they um but i like reading biographies again to see how people have failed and how people have succeeded i think those are usually a little bit more informative as well but man like I, you know i'm i'm still actually making my way through uh ron chenro's biography of grant which is a great book but man it is dense and i can do you know a chapter or two every night but if that's all i'm reading every night it's like no so i need i need some something where it's it's some sort of sci-fi or some other uh, uh fiction book or just something easy to read that uh uh keeps me good <laughs> yeah you know because the other actually book you know the, the the one book that has um that i kind of pick up pretty regular now um i know it's probably all the rage but you know i i have kind of taken into like kind of stoic philosophy a little bit more and Marcus Aurelius, you know, reading meditations, uh, you know, that, um, I was going through that, reading through that while I was in my command tour and that really hit some things for me and, and was almost in a way like a warm blanket to pull over, um, that I was like, man, I think this is, this is this thing that I've been looking for, um, for so long. Like I'm not a big guy in the faith and, you know, I don't have any of those kind of things that drive me, but like, all of a sudden it was like, Hey, this, you know, this kind of snapped into my brain and that's a book that I still, um, you know, pick up pretty regularly, uh, as well. But again, it's like something you can, you can read in small little snippets, um, oh. before you, before you get, uh, bogged down into it. That's a, a must read, a personal favorite and, um, never heard it described as a warm blanket because sometimes it feels like quite the opposite when you're reading it. But, um, yeah, that's interesting. If you're a biography fan, I also very dense and kind of hard to take in a lot at once, but I would definitely recommend uh, Walter Isaacson's uh, Steve Jobs biography. Oh, yeah. Very, very good. Yeah. Um, Check it out. Uh, and it, and it's my ever-growing stack of books that I right. have time to read for as I'm, as, as a, this last couple of months has been really nice because I haven't been in school a whole lot, but my schedule is going to get busy here in the next couple of weeks. So I think my that's the other part when you're at school all day last thing you know sometimes you just want to come home and watch seinfeld episodes on on netflix and there's nothing wrong with that right like and that's the other part too is like don't beat yourself up because you didn't didn't read a book because of course you get on social media and this person's like i read 154 books last year and you're like oh, man i'm a slacker um but don't 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 compare don't compare yourself to people on the internet. It never works out well, right? Like, what did I, what do I read? But this last month has actually been a pretty prolific uh, reading environment for me, which has been nice. So. Colin, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. 
Yeah, Brock, thanks for reaching out. It's good, uh, good discussion, man. Best of luck to you.